Welcome to the Social Housing Podcast from Voicecape, the only podcast dedicated to helping social landlords build sustainable tenancies. During this series of podcasts, we'll be speaking to leaders from the social housing sector and beyond, hopefully challenging the status quo a little bit, and also stimulating discussion around how technology can be better utilised to help build sustainable tenancies. I'm your host, John Doyle, the Chief Exec and Founder of Voicecape. So somewhere in the region of half a billion pounds of waste over the next decade on uh, court action, non-access, it, it really does start to stack up. I don't know if I was to hazard a guess in the next 12 months, I think it's quite likely we will see five-year inspecting tests come in for electrical safety as well on, uh, on the EICRs. So you're going to be adding to that all the time in terms of you know, having to get into people's homes. Today on the Social Housing Podcast, we're speaking to Claire Hayes, who is the Chief Executive of Corgi Technical Services. Hi Claire, anybody who's ever met you or heard you speak will be impressed by how enthusiastic you are as Chief Executive at Corgi. I just wondered if you wanted to share what things you're most proud of during your time in that role. Absolutely. Well, there's lots of things. Um, I came into this role about 14 years ago and quite frankly, really didn't know where or how I was going to add value. So uh, first job was to get on the road and talk to people, find out what their biggest challenges is. And actually it's really relevant to today. So I asked for the top five challenges from uh, the people that I was meeting and, and bizarrely what came out as number one with all of the challenges we have in the sector was access. So that's really wow. stuck with me all of these years. And I think at the time there was a lack of voice and platform and professionalism, not with the people, but the recognition um, and a home for them. So I founded the, what was at the time, the Association of Gas Safety Managers to really represent this body of people trying to do their, their jobs as best we could. And we created um, a gas safety management qualification, a professional level four qualification. Um, we then went on to create the Association of Electrical Safety Managers, which is now uh, a bigger home as the sectors move towards this broader compliance of the Association of um, Safety and Compliance Professionals. Um, we have about a thousand members now. So that's just grown and grown to give people a home, a sense of belonging, a place to share their problems, their concerns, and also a safe space to talk about things that they know aren't quite right. Um, and, and get concerns of others. And, and it really is sort of strength in numbers. So I'm really proud of that. And uh, with that, the uh, creation of women in compliance as well to represent um, the sort of development needs of the females in the sector as well. So that's grown from strength to strength. Brilliant. And am I right in thinking that's not just social housing, that's outside of social housing as well? It's primarily social housing, um, but we have a lot of the uh, um, sort of FM, you know, the, the colleges and universities, prisons, uh, hospitals. So we do a lot of the bigger buildings as well, but they tend to come under the sort of county councils, some of the big contractors, but, but I'd say 90% social housing. Okay, great. I know you've been very active around regulation and lobbying as well. And with your success on, was it regulation 36A in That's 2018, it, I think? 
what else do you think needs to happen? Um, well, that, that really came on the back of what was the um, access campaign at the time, which we knew we were on a bit of a hide into nothing. Myself and Mark Henderson, actually, um, at the Home Group, went to see the housing minister at the time. And it was pretty clear we, we were, I didn't feel we were getting a fair hearing at the time. It was, uh, it was two out, one in of, of regulation. So, you know, it was pretty unlikely we were going to change regulation. However, um, fair play to HSE. They gave us a good hearing. Um, I talked to them about the waste, the logistical waste around not having a, a, the anniversary date for servicing of, of, of boilers. So, yeah, it took a couple of years of lobbying, lots and lots of number crunching uh, to, to justify our claims of the waste that was in the sector by, you know, people having to get into homes up to two or even three months before the service was due. And that was just pure waste. So we know now that uh, over, well, hundreds of millions of pounds have already been saved by organisations that have adopted what is known as the MOT style servicing or regulation. 36A, as you say. So really pleased about that. And more and more um, organisations are going down that route. So a huge success for us. And, and probably that is also one of the areas I'm really proud of. And members were fantastic and gave me all their data, backed up those claims and really brought it to life and, and ran with it from day one. Brilliant. And obviously we're talking about the, the core issue being um, no access. And I wondered if you could explain some of the factors that you believe contribute to higher levels of no access? Yeah, sure. Well, it's straight because it's such a basic concept to get over the door to carry out a safety check, but it's fraught with issues. So um, to try and decode when I sort of set out our objectives really um, with an access uh, group to look at why is this problem such a big problem? Um, and it's quite complex. Um, so we, we set out our objectives. So to decode the issues of why this is so challenging, to define the magnitudes of the problem, scale of the problem, uh, to examine, have we got our own house in order? Is this about regulation or is it re really about how we operate? Uh, and to question, are the current models fit for purpose? Finding that win-win, which, you know, I always believe it's there if we really work together. Um, and at the same time, moving the sector forward and always sharing best practice. So. Quite a few things came out of that. Um, so the six key factors, not unsurprisingly, but always good to have that clarity, human factors, you know, we're, we're complicated animals yeah. with many different <laughs> uh, priorities and goals and, and challenges. Uh, the economic challenges that we have, the cost of non-access or the cost of gaining access, the lens that we have to go to to actually gain access. And then, of course, logistical Street by street is where we really want to be. But, you know, zigzagging across um, towns and cities, only gaining in one home during the day, you know, the cost of that is astronomical. Technical challenges, um, not to be underestimated, understanding the underpinning legislation. And bizarrely, you know, that, that's interwoven with this. There's four areas of law that cross over access. Uh, contract law, civil law, criminal law, human rights, HSE regulations, wow. there's no case law um, and there's no statute that's clear on what reasonable steps is. Adding to that political, the political will, the political drive, the challenges that organisations have internally are 
you know, they're just growing. It's a multiple headed beast that we're dealing with. And then legal, the judiciary, you know, that they are fragmented. Different towns and cities have, have different um, ways of viewing access and non-access, et cetera. So it sounds really simple, but it's really complex and it's a, a hindrance to what is uh, safety at the end of the day. Yeah, I think that that is very, very important point there, Claire. I mean, it sounds like an absolute minefield and obviously without, I suppose, using it for capital gain, but the, the Grenfell crisis brought building safety front and centre for everybody. Uh, so it's interesting to comment on the way you are saying, yeah, it sounds easy, but it isn't easy. I know you've done some calculations about what the, you know, the cost of no access is on an annual basis and, and sort of projected that out. Just can you talk to that and tell us just how bad is it? Yeah, well, it's pretty bad. Uh, and this is just looking at gas alone. So somewhere in the region of half a billion pounds of waste over the next decade on uh, court action, non-access, um, it, it really does start to stack up. This, well, in the next, I don't know if I was to hazard a guess, in the next 12 months, I think it's quite likely we will see five-year inspecting tests come in for electrical safety as well on uh, on the EICRs. So you're going to be adding to that all the time in terms of, you know, having to get into people's homes. Um, and then we've got asbestos, fire safety, as we know. I was really disappointed on the building safety bill that they removed. I did see it in with my own eyes that access into people's homes within the high-rise blocks was going to be part of that building safety bill, that has been taken out. So for me, it's a bit of a paradox. How the hell can we keep people safe when we can't get into the home to do the jobs that we've been given to do? So it's um, it's an ongoing challenge and the cost is just going to go up and up as um, the focus becomes more and more on safety and compliance. Yeah. I mean, if you were to sort of point the finger anywhere, do, do you have any sense of who's to blame for that level of waste? And and, and a, also, is there anything clear we can do to turn it around? You know, it, how it's, bleak it's is a, it? There's no silver bullet. Um, I think no. we're, we're all part of the problem and we all need to be part of the solution. You know, we look to landlords, but actually it's a, it's a much bigger issue than that. So, you know, multiple stakeholders, the legal system being one of them. Of course, the government are yeah. right up there. And yes, landlords are but not to um, overlook the, the role that the residents themselves must play. Having reviewed the Charter for Social Housing, there, there is a statement in there that you know, the government have committed to helping residents themselves understand what role they play in safety. And I think that's absolutely critical. Um, the budget to raise awareness of these things is you know, running into multi-million <laughs> pounds, although we may save that if we could gain access. So I think there's not, you know, there isn't a silver bullet, but I think working closer together and the government putting the money where their mouth is in terms of delivering on the, well, actually, I, I wrote it down um, as my um, homework before this uh, call with you in their charter, in their uh, social housing white paper, their number one promise in there is to make residents safe in their home. So surely to do right. that, we have to be able to carry out those regulated checks within the home. But that plays no part in the paper or in any of the other discussions that seem to be 
heading towards becoming regulation, even though, you know, there's been lots of discussion and um, we certainly have banged the drum every opportunity we get to raise the issue of um, having stronger powers of access to homes to carry out safety checks. It doesn't sound like the government, you know, telling telling the sector to do better, but not actually helping them to do it. It's such a shame. <laughs> it's quite a common you theme, know, that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. we, we could help them with that. We can share our knowledge, how, yeah. why, where's the savings come from? Where's the business case? But they just don't seem, I think their agenda is is pretty big as well. The people doing the work in DLUHC and HSE, their budgets have been cut. Their resources are cut. You know, they, they have been given priorities. So we're in a bit of a mess. Um, but until we start to get real and back up our claims, we're not easily going to get out of this. So that's why, you know, I was really pleased you invited me onto this podcast to help raise awareness and to kind of garner yeah. that um, force, if you like, that we all need to have to, to keep banging the drum. Brilliant. I remember when we spoke previously, Claire, that I sensed that you felt there was potentially a disconnect within a lot of social landlords between, you know, the frontline workers who get it, who are on it, and to an extent, the boards who, I'm not saying they pay lip service to it, but not perhaps as focused on the issue, despite Grenfell, as, as, as perhaps it should be. Is that something that you still feel to be the case? It certainly can be. As always, we get our top performers and our worst performers. Many organisations, the leadership is is strong, it listens, it understands the issues, but that's not always the case. Um, and I think there can be that disconnect because the people that are delivering the work, knocking on those doors, responsible for 100% compliance, the, the, the devil's always in the detail until the, the board go back to the floor, really find out just how challenging this is and support their teams, making sure they get in their CPD, making sure they're networking with others, attending conferences, events, membership of you know, bodies like the ASB to really talk about these issues and the solutions. So I think that that disconnects, it's, it's kind of human nature. We've all got lots of priorities, um, lots of things on the agenda and certainly the boards in social housing. Now more than ever, you know, if you look at what they're dealing with, fire safety, cladding, building safety, net zero, the housing crisis, home building, and the list just goes on. So I can kind of see how we've got there. And in some cases with less resource, although I can, I've witnessed myself, the resources within safety and compliance has definitely grown over the last, I would say five years, probably in response to Grenfell. So I'm really pleased to see more resource. So there's a level of acknowledgement. There's also a level of engagement we've had with directors and CEOs to, to, that want to understand the issues. But I think it's just the agenda is so big. I would just ask every director and CEO, talk to your safety and compliance teams. Ask them what they're worried about. Find out what they feel is the biggest risk. Don't just ask if they're 100% compliance. Compliance is only one aspect of safety. It's much, much bigger and much more cultural than just sort of having a green dashboard that can hide what's really going on under the surface. Yeah, I hear that. Okay, as a final question, Claire, just a bit of a left field. If you had a magic wand in this area, what would be, maybe not the one thing, but what would be the one, two, three things that you would say, if I could, these are the things I'd change because I think that would affect maximum 
um, opportunity for like? Um, it would have to be access, stronger powers of access. Um, that's, you know, that really is a quick win. Now, it's yeah. never simple, but that is, that would say money, time, confusion. It would, you know, it would also give the government assurance that they've, they've equipped us to carry out that role. So I, I think that would have to be the number one. I think, secondly, I would say um, education and awareness about safety and not just compliance. We talk an awful lot about compliance, but as we know, that's kind of the lowest common denominator. And it, it's, you know, if you look at the Swiss cheese model, when all the holes line up, you're going to get an incident and, you know, compliance alone isn't going to save you from that. So I think much more talk about culture and safety. And then I think for the government to just get real um, and to listen to people that know not the same old people saying the same old things. They really need to get down and dirty and start to understand what's um, going on within the communities, within society, and talk to people like our members that know these people, they know the challenges, they understand the vulnerabilities, the issues around hoarding, the fact that they're not going to be able to do any ICR because, you know, there's a hoarder in there and there's vulnerabilities and issues and they can't get round the house. And it's okay to create policy, but if you don't understand the technical challenges and the human challenges, it's, yeah, you're fighting a losing battle and you're not going to make those homes safe until you understand those things. I think that's been a really interesting insight, Claire. I think from our perspective, our mantra has always been that the landlords need to get closer to the customers anyway, to the tenants, understand them more individually. But when you talk about those vulnerabilities, those kind of real life issues, which prevent um, some of those obligations to keep people safe, I think that's a really sort of interesting observation. I think overall, it's been fantastic speaking to you, Claire, that the issue of building safety and and I like what you're saying. It's not just compliance. It's much more than compliance. And I think that's the message that we have to get out there uh, far and wide. And I'd like to just thank you for your input into the podcast today. Oh, it's been lovely. Thanks for the opportunity, thank you. John. I um, really appreciate it.